Hello and welcome to season two of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and today's special guest, former Liberal Democrat MP, uh, the person responsible for the legalisation of same-sex marriage in the UK, and somebody who put up with me as their campaign manager for many years, Lynn Featherstone. Long-suffering, clearly. <laughs> Um, so I was thinking about actually 2005, because that was the general election uh, in which you got elected to Parliament for the first time. It was. And in many ways, I think politics immediately after the 2005 election felt a little bit similar to what it does now, as in there had been a governing party that had won an election, and most of the political assumptions were, well, if they won that one, they're probably going to go on to win many more elections. Um, there was also a bit of a sense the Liberal Democrats had had a big political opportunity in 2005 with Iraq, in 2019 with Brexit, and a general sense of disappointment that the party hadn't taken as much of that opportunity as perhaps it could have. Um, but of course, politics after 2005 then very rapidly turned out very differently with the big financial crash in 2007 and so on, which is perhaps a warning to us not to be too self-confident about our predictions as to what we think will happen in this parliament. But with that caveat aside, what's your take, Lynn, on how politics is looking at the moment? Uh, apart from miserable and depressing, um, it looks as if the Tories will be in power, barring incident, mm. for two terms at least. Somewhat dependent on how the opposition fares, but in terms of the Liberal Democrats, I think we have a mountain to climb, mm. to be frank. Um, it's, it's, when, when you talk as a Liberal Democrat about winning, you know, I was always in a Labour-facing seat, so I needed uh, a Labour government so that it could start to lose after, yeah. after New Labour's new dawn, because um, that's what happens if you're in a place where the majority of people vote Labour you need their votes. And that should have been us against the Conservatives that we've just seen. And it went the other way. Well, I guess regular listeners will be glad that you had immediately fallen into the honorary Stephen Tall role of being the pessimist about the party. Because, yes. uh, I, I mean, I guess I would be rather more optimistic. <laughs> uh, not only, as it were, because I'm now contractually obliged to be, being the party president. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, but also, what, one of the things that struck me in amongst the disappointments of the last election was if you look at the number of seats where the party is now not only in a very clear second place, but not that far behind who won the seat. Um, most of those are Tory-held seats, and there's a good 20 or 30 seats where you think, if a group of people do what the, you know, the likes of you and I and Neil okay. and others did okay. in the so Green, they can win un under their own steam, let alone other seats we could win if the national picture are is good. reasons to be mm. cheerful. But it's quite challenging after an election at which it was uh, touted that there were 200 seats mm. within our reach. So, and I think we have to be really realistic mm. because we had a huge swathe of people join us, partly because it looked like we were going to be the centre ground and the centre ground mm. was going to hold sway mm. and the Chukas and the Lucianas joined and perhaps there was a bit of a new dawn. Mm. And clearly that did not happen. So... My concern is mainly with our voting system. Mm. I, you know, yes, we can claw back 20 or 30 mm. seats. But to me, that's not what I want. What I want, I want um, to be a main party in this country 
to have my voice actually count, the liberal voice in politics, not to always be frustrated, as we always are, by the basic way our politics works. And I think Westminster politics is broken. It's broken to the point where other people say, well, look, it's working because people got so fed up, get Brexit done, you know, these wonderful three-word slogans that tempt a whole nation into voting just to have a clear majority because they want that certainty. And the, the reasoned arguments in the middle, I think we were our own, not just us, I think we collectively were our own worst enemies because over Brexit, we all went to our own corners to come out fighting. So we hung on, quite rightly, obviously, in my view, to um, a second referendum. The SNP went only for a Scottish Indy Ref 2. Mm. Labour equivocated because without that they would split it asunder. Mm. And the Tories moved sharply to the right because to take the Brexit mm. votes and the UKIP votes. And all of us stuck to our positions without the compromises you need to be. In, in a way, you had a perfect example of what proportional representation might deliver in Parliament and we didn't demonstrate it terribly well. Some people say, look, it did what it should. It stopped the government going ahead. On the other hand, we got nowhere and we were in stasis and created a terrible situation for everyone, psychologically and business-wise. So, I, I mean, I think there are some huge issues underpinning our nation and that we've turned in to a nasty nation, not just a nasty party who are now pretending to be the nice party, Certainly the Britain of the London Olympics of 2012 feels... Long way feels away quite now, a long, a long way away. Long way, but but isn't, I think that's also a reason for optimism in the sense that it is only uh, eight, eight years ago. Um, and I think one of the things that strikes me about when you look at when the Lib Dems have done best, and there's obviously lots of different definitions of best, but quite often that has come after a really disappointing looking election result that people have felt has set the tone for a long period of time, but things didn't turn out like that. So not only did, you know, our entry into government, your entry into government as minister, <laughs> happen in 2010, which was the first election after 2005, when many people, I think, rightly felt that perhaps the Lib Dems had missed an opportunity there because of the Iraq war, that if they weren't going to break through in 2005, when would they ever? But then the next election was the one that got us into, into government. Or likewise, the big breakthrough in terms of parliamentary numbers in 1997, Actually, at the beginning of that parliament, after the 92 Tory election victory, people were saying the Tories have won four elections in a row, were the Tories going to win elections forever? There was a really good book written okay, about okay. is Britain turning Japanese, as in would there be a ruling party that always wins? So I, I, think, I think there are definitely good reasons to be realistic for the sorts of, you know, the sorts of factors you mentioned. But isn't there a risk of sort of slightly of, of assuming that the only unexpected events that can happen in the next few years are going to be bad ones rather than good ones and that actually politics is a lot more up for grabs as to what happens than it might seem at the moment. Slightly hard to envisage from where I'm standing but there's always opportunities and I think you know obviously uh, we need to shore up our our, our base across mm. the country and grow our base mm. across the country because if there's one thing we know and the reason that Chuka and Lu uh, Luciana came to us is you can't win without soldiers. Mm. So, so growing on the base and, and focusing on the next local elections and doing all of the things that Lib Dems are best at, absolutely. And we can and will rebuild. I've got no doubt about that. 
But what I'm saying is in terms of breakthrough, in, in terms of changing the nation, you're optimistic that if it was only 2012 when we had the Olympics and the Paralympics, which were even more superb, and everyone loved people with disabilities, but look where that went. So, yes, you can turn it around, but I would like to create a nation where niceness was brought out and not nastiness. And I, th I think the way we do politics has become denuded of decency. Um, maybe it was ever thus, but it wasn't in my experience thus. And also, from my experience on the doorstep, and my goodness, I've seen a few of them over the years, um, my experience on the doorstep is that real people are not as demented and horrible as, as prescribed in the media or on the Twitter sphere or social media, but they're really mostly very decent people just trying to make a living to look mm. after their families and... Um, their views are generally somewhat in the middle. But mm. and, and I think it's not just on social media. One thing that struck me is with Question Time, which is, I was going to say it's a show I've had a love-hate relationship with, but actually really I've had a hate-hate relationship yeah, with no, it over the years. Yeah, I hate it, and I also um, fall asleep. But unlike most people who say they hate it, I actually generally don't watch it. Um, <laughs> but one thing that struck me is about the way the audience behaves. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, in, a, in one sense, the Question Time audience is atypical because it's a people who have decided they want to go and hear, a see program, a political yeah. show being recorded. But then that the audience has always been atypical in that respect. But I do think there is a degree in which the way that, for example, uh, questions from members of the audience get clipped and circulated subsequently, which rather like with social media itself, encourages the more extreme and outrageous behaviour. Yeah, it's so, if you, if, so if you go along and are, uh, you know, a, a mild-mannered member of the audience who, who, who applauds politely, if you get asked a question, asked yeah. quite a, maybe an interesting but not outrageous or angry question, you basically won't feature. And, and there is an incentive there in the very way that shows like that operate to encourage the more outrageous. Are you saying they edit people out? I don't think it's so much that they, they edit them out, but that it, you know, if you know that if you if you get really angry and outraged, there's a chance that a clip of you might circulate so, around no, all over the place. Some people will be horrified by that and go nowhere near the studio, but for other people, that will encourage them to be even more exaggerated in what they say and, and have even less thought of, oh, maybe I should be a bit self-restrained. It's no, actually, I should get really agitated because that's the way that... Yeah, so no, I, I do wonder if the, if the way just the, that basic structure yes, encourages yes. But it, it goes the, back the to the very fundamental mm. way we do politics around this country, which is adversarial. It's based on hate because yeah. hate sells. It's like the newspaper. You know, they don't print yeah. good news or speak your weight machine mm. stuff. They, um, they want people to hate each other. And whether they're foreigners or Muslims or Jews or rich or scroungers, you know, let's hate them and then we'll all feel better. And the worse that we can describe it and the more we can find an argument, then if we publicise that and let's send it out into the world. But isn't there a degree to which politics has to be adversarial? Um, I mean, I'm reminded of, I don't know if you remember this, but probably the... The leaflet that I wrote for you and the local sort of team in Haringey that caused the most controversy over the years was one which actually featured the word paedophile. Um, and yeah. it was a story no, about no, how a convicted paedophile had slipped through employment checks and had ended up being a driver on a school bus in Haringey. Okay, and there were some 
there were some of your colleagues who were very uneasy, to put it mildly, that you at put the that idea in a of particularly a story using the word paedophile, whilst I would justify it on well, the basis that factual, the right? story was A, true, and B, was a story genuinely of relevance and of public interest, because there was... Now, rules around safety of children had failed to be kept, and they'd failed to be kept by the council, and the council is run by politicians who are elected. And, elect- and so, legitimate. And, and so yeah. in that sense, that seemed to me a very legitimate bit of definitely non... of sort of quite confrontational politics. You know, there, in, in that sense, it wasn't about sort of seeking consensus or common ground, but it, instead a, a, a matter no, but of, I think, I think of almost finger-pointing misrep- to say misrep- this is outrageous. Misrepresentation of consensus politics, because it doesn't mean... Um, that we all love each other or hold the same views. It means that we disagree and understand that sometimes one gets one's way and sometimes one doesn't. And one would hope that the dynamic of a good idea would hold sway rather than um, what you're describing is just a factual reporting of something mm. where the council didn't mm. do its job properly. And it did, I, whether it was, I, mm. I have no memory of this, but whether it was the checks that you're meant to do on people who have anything to do with children or not. So it's totally legitimate. It doesn't mean, mm. you know, I'm Mr. Nice Guy all the time. Mm. It doesn't mean that. It just means we don't rely on denigration of other to win. And I would also argue that the first past the post system which you know bores mm. people to tears generally um, is exactly that it's a winner take all system mm. so you have to win and it no lot longer matters whether you win by lying or cheating setting up companies so your mm. your expenses don't count the sort of um, the data analysis misuse of all of these things are now being normalized mm. as well it's fair game actually you know, and it's kind of how the UK's always worked, is it was, it's not cricket. Mm. And really, and I've got no idea why we behaved so well, generally, over, over previous years and centuries. Um, we have a sense of right and wrong, yeah. which has disappeared mm. in recent elections. Yeah, well, your, your reference to centuries obviously brings out the historian in me. Um, I'm not and a historian, I think, so. I mean, I think if you look at politics... Um, it's very easy to look at politics with two rose-tinted glasses because I think, well, definitely say the politics of the late 90s were very different from the politics of now for the sorts of reasons you mentioned. In many ways, I think actually the politics of that period are, are more the exception. If you look at the sort of tenor of political debate um, that, you know, that there have been in previous decades, especially when you, when you start looking at how politicians who were not straight white men have been treated in political debate until really pretty recently, and even still obviously an issue today. But, you know, until pretty recently, all sorts of absolutely outrageous and appalling things happened that actually, by and large, don't anymore. So I, I think it's not that the past was all sorts of wonderful. But I think what was different, um, and this is in a sense, of course, for optimism, maybe, um, is that basically when the economy is doing better, um, when you know part of part of the politics of the late nineties was that was politics off the back of many years of, of fairly consistent economic growth, um, and whilst there were still big issues of inequality, big issues of poverty, big issues about providing high quality public services, it provided a basic backdrop for politics which was um, less sort of adversarial and less sort of stress inducing because it was more about arguing over how to try and do 
what should be the next nice thing that we do or how should the next bit of extra money available to spend well, of course. be distributed. And I think that more, that softer backdrop to politics is perhaps the key difference. And, well, and if the economy picks up, it's a big if, given all of the damage that Brexit is likely to do. Perhaps we will see a, more, a swifter return to that sort of style of politics than you, than you fear. Well, let's hope so. But it's, it's, it's also, you know, uh, one of the pressures, which is beyond the pale, in my mm. view, is the polarisation of the media and the influence it has. I'm not just talking about social media. I mean, it was interesting. I went to a talk by Andrew Marr at, um, from Hose Hill Library. Mm. And no one had asked him what role the media mm. had to play in all of this. So eventually I put my hand up and asked mm. him. And he went straight to social media mm. as the evil mm. beyond all evil. But I would equally argue that the sort of... Both the Guardian and, and, the, and, the, and the Mail, you know, because they sit in their own corners and speak to their own echo chambers. Yeah. And there's a lovely example of that. Lovely is maybe not quite the right word. A striking example of that in the Guardian from a few days ago where there is this dispute uh, in West London over a youth club um, which residents have taken up a petition against. The residents' case is that the youth club is too large and for, for, for the venue that it has and it's not a good venue for the youth club, that it causes too much disturbance and it's not, it's, you know, that basically the youth club is not well located. The youth club side of the argument is that the residents are being... Uh, basically want to gentrifying the area and then being able to produce. I don't know enough about the issue to have any sense of who is in the right or who is in the wrong. Uh, but one thing that really struck me was that the residents have said that they would, you know, they would rather the space is used for something else that would serve the area, such as, for example, a library or a coffee shop or so uh, a, a couple of... And, so it, indeed, yeah. and what was interesting, I thought, was the Guardian, of the different options, the Guardian picked the coffee shop as the one to put in its headline which was, yes, that is one of the options the residents have said they would like. It's also the most provocative, anger-inducing, oh, my goodness, how on earth can people want to replace a, a youth club with a coffee shop? I, I must go and read this story. And, and, coffees, yeah. and if, I've, I've no doubt the sub-editor who, who, who chose to put coffee shop in that would in part defend it to say, well, the way he and she and their, the journalists keep their jobs is by the advertising revenue and the readership and you therefore pick a headline and the coffee shop is... It yeah, was but not invented. Know, the, but prob the problem is, I mean, I was thinking even further than that, the enemies of the people and all of those kind of things, which turn, just, just put up hate figures, is that we have, you know, that sells. It's what I was saying before, mm. hate, hate sells. But, but what it is creating is a hateful society. Mm. And, you know, I think it's up to individuals and, and people who do things. I mean, in, I mean you say I have a rosy-eyed view but I've always been rosy-eyed. That's why I joined the Lib Dems. And look so you, what you're, you're always optimistic about the past. I'm always optimistic about the future. Well, That's the I, difference. I, I, well, <laughs> I think I've been tempered by reality. You know, when I came into Parliament, I think we were 63 MPs mm. and we're now 11. So my enthusiasm and optimism... Maybe and getting you elected was a mistake then. <laughs> Maybe that was the trigger. Of <laughs> well, you, you may well argue that. But, and I'm sure I can't be the only mm. MP or ex-MP... Mm who went into politics because you wanted to make the world a better mm. place, which is what everyone says, but also because you knew right from wrong. Mm. And if, if you no longer... If you keep your mouth shut when you know something is wrong, mm. 
and you cease doing the right things because it's not expedient to your party. So I think party good has come before common good mm. to an extent in my lifetime that I wasn't aware of. You say it was always mm. there. Of course, politics has always had a venal mm. pork barrel kind of reputation. Mm. Um, but in the era in which I got involved in politics, it was literally for all the right reasons. And unless you get back to a situation where people respect mm. good, dislike bad, mm. act in a, a manner of trust, you know, you're not going to be able to counter the, the bad elements in the mm. world, of which there are many across every industry and every profession mm. and so on and so forth. So I, th I think we are up against it. Yep. Um, obviously, one <laughs> one solution that we would both we would both very much hope for to that is more Liberal Democrat MPs in Parliament. So I just thought, sort of, finally, it might be worth maybe just reflecting on how you got elected to Parliament because uh, I'm sure there will be, and I know I've sort of spoken to several people who either stood or decided not to stand at the last election, for example, who were thinking, well, politically, what do they want to do now? And in a way, the fact that this parliament may well last more ten, years rather than fewer one. years yeah. um, means that for some people it's, well, let's not rush to make a decision, etc. But for others, there's also a bit of, well, actually, if I've maybe got a full four years or five years to work up a seat, perhaps that's all the more reason to start getting stuck in sooner because then there's a sense of, well, the longer you've got, the more of a difference you can make under your own efforts, etc. Um, now, obviously, when you sort of first first uh, thought about standing for Parliament, um, it was in a seat that we were a huge distance off winning. So what, were the sorts, so what were the sorts of things that you thought about at the time that maybe other people thinking about, do they want to stand or do they maybe want to help a colleague stand, okay, might well, be sensible for them to think about at the moment? Partly I lacked knowledge, so I might have been more hesitant had I not recognised it was one of the worst seats in the country. <laughs> to try and overcome a 26,000 okay. So lesson number one, ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, living proof mm. that it's not impossible mm. because in this period of eight years, two, mm. two elections basically, I overturned a 26,000 Labour majority and there was a Conservative in between mm. and knocked them out and, and, uh, uh, after four mm. years. So I'm living proof that it can mm. be done. And I actually believed in our own mantra mm that if you work and you fight for the people... I mean, when I first knocked on doors in 97 and said, could I rely on somebody's vote? And they said, which party? And they said, Liberal Democrat. And they would burst out laughing. They'd never, ever had Liberal Democrats around here. Um, but over that eight years, by taking on everybody's problems and fighting for them, because the other thing is, Labour in this... Because every constituency is different, but Labour in this constituency has now been in power and the council for about 50 years or more. And they, people, they take people for granted. So there was no one fighting um, for anyone here. So with a few major campaigns, like a new police front, or reopening the police front counter, a new bus route, and lots and lots and lots of small, great things that make a difference to people's lives. I mean, people laugh about the potholes and the fencing that you get repaired yeah. and all of those things. It matters to your daily life. But what people got used to and came to trust me with their vote for was I fought for them and they knew I delivered and I didn't go away when I lost an election. I was still there after the election. And I think what is... I suspect probably what you mean by that phrase may be slightly different from what some people 
listening to that phrase will take it to me Which phrase? Um, about fighting for people because yes. obviously a huge part of what you did was massive of, of volumes of individual items of casework huge of all sorts of issues of for people yeah. and, and I mentioned that because one thing that I think is noticeable in a lot of the election campaigns a lot of the constituency campaigns that we ran at the last election was there were an awful lot of candidates who didn't have anything like the equivalent of the message that you had yeah. in the campaign when you then won, which was to say, here is the police station that I got reopened, here is the bus route Remember that I got Remember the fights used to have exactly. down Woodville when you couldn't pass each <laughs> other? Those double yellow yeah. lines and Exactly. Lines. And having those sort <laughs> yeah. of very... No, and, and in a way that, for example, somebody like Daisy Cooper, a fantastic yeah. victory in St Albans, she very much has that sort of track yeah, record. Yeah, no, she did. She and worked I, it and that's what made it her seat. Yeah. So... That is the tried and tested way, but it's, it's not only a tried and tested way of winning, it's actually what you should be doing mm. in, in an area where people feel they're, they're not listened to or no one's taking up their cause. And it makes such a difference to people's lives. Council. Of course it does. And so when it comes to the bigger things, and this is where I think the Liberal Democrats have got a challenge, um, because being the most Remain party and, you know, always, always believed in internationalism and the EU and all of those things, we can do this groundwork and we have to do this groundwork and it is the right thing to be doing. But we also need a new vision, um, a new way of doing politics, a new song to sing to because, you know, I, I personally understand people who want to immediately campaign to rejoin the EU, but I would silence them if I could because I just think that is disrespectful to the result of this election. I think the referendum you could argue either on the narrowness of the vote when it should have been what they always have on constitutional matters of two thirds majority but also it was very close and there were lots of lies and all of those things but I think this the country has spoken and yet I'm hearing a lot of voices saying well if you added all the remain parties together they would still outvote I think you have to play by the rules that are in place. And I think that reflects um, the need for us to stay true to our pro-European beliefs. Absolutely. But we need to job is turn that into specific action well, that is appropriate job, in the circumstances. Our job is and, quite clear yeah. at this moment, well I think it's quite clear, which is to fight, hold the government to mm. account, to be uh, as near to, to uh, no tariffs, as mm. close as we can be. Um, hopefully no visas, you know, to be their best, to make this Conservative government understand that the closer we are to our European allies, the better. Exactly, and there will be a lot of, there will be a lot of political opportunities and debate over that because we've not just got the withdrawal agreement bill, but also then all of the negotiations leading through to potentially another cliff edge actually at the end of this year. So that's... Forgetting the cliff edge mm. for a minute, let's assume they get a deal and mm. it's good. Our job is to make sure it is a good deal and, and that everyone ends up relatively happy and that whatever circumstance mm. we're in, economically we're going to be able to function well as a country so mm. that we can provide all the things that need to be provided um, in all of our public services and other things, defence yeah. as well. Um, However, it shouldn't be all we do. Mm. I mean, if, you know, we've seen how fragile, you know, we mm. thought we were flying really in terms of our position on remain and the votes in the country and when it came to the election it didn't hold sway i mean there were other factors at play there but nevertheless we need to be more than single issue you know you referred back to iraq mm. which helped a bit but it's never enough i i th think 
that um, there is an opportunity for a centrist party, should be asked clearly, um, to, to prove to people that you can have reasoned, developed debate, good policies that the vast majority of people agree with. The challenge to me is how you get that voted for in a first-past-the-post yep. system because it, it just disappears. I mean, you know, look what's happened to all of the parties. I mean, I think the Three, from a political organisational point what, of view, one of the, I think, lessons from Iraq for me was that if you look at parties' membership, the parties' number of, say, local councillors, uh, the parties' donor base, you know, and a whole load of different criteria, actually the huge political opportunity and obviously there's a whole other issue, a much more important side of the public policy side of Iraq, but you know, from that political organisational point of view, is that huge opportunity didn't result in really any long-term strengthening of the party. No. It didn't produce a boost in membership, it didn't produce a boost in our it's data, it didn't produce that. on that day about that issue. Mm. And but I think also this is actually one thing that we did get right with Brexit, um, that we have ended up with... You know, for all the disappointments at the end of last year, we are, you know, financially, membership, local government based, all in a much stronger position than we were. Those people want to stay Mm. in. And as much as I love potholes, (laughs) you know, I think there are, for some people, much more national issues at play, which we need to give voice to. And I think, I mean, what I'm saying is I really struggle to know how to combat. If I, if, I, if I leave us out the equations, I think in 2015, the Greens got something like 3.7% of the vote yeah. and one seat. The SNP had something like 4.6% of the vote, like under 1% more, and got 56 yeah. seats. It was a classic example of first-past-the-post benefiting parties who are geographically concentrated. So it, and, and have less people per MP. Yeah. So it is... It is so monumentally wrong mm. because it gives a skew to the power base mm. and look what happens mm. they spend their entire time wanting to leave us so there are lots and lots of issues but it is essentially to try and breathe positivity mm. into liberalism yep um so on that note it's worth it's worth perhaps adding that there are lots of opportunities for them members and indeed them supporters to influence all of that through this year because the party will have well, firstly, our general and European elections review, uh, the, the, which will be carried out independently of those who ran the elections, and that will be a really important review. We will also have a leadership election uh, to elect a new leader, and I'm sure that, for example, some of these questions about what our policy on Europe should be in future Can I just ask about that leadership that. thing? Mm. You know, given that we are small of number... Um, there, is there any call for any kind of change to our rules to have one in Parliament and one out of Parliament to try and be a little more liberal with our Well, of course, we do leadership? currently technically have, have that because we have two interim co-leaders, Ed Davey, who is an MP, and myself, who is not. Um, but no, I, I've, not, I've not really heard a call uh, very, very many suggestions at all for sort of changing the rules in that respect. So I think um, it's obviously possible that decisions may go I just think otherwise, but I think it's very unlikely that we will, no, we will end up running really the election. No, I think it's really unlikely, but rules. I also think we need to change the way we yeah. do things. I think we should be liberal, I think we should be radical, I think we should move on, and I don't see why yeah. you can't have one in and one out, and, you know, well, I, I I, because I want mm. to carry on attracting the centre ground, 
Um, and I think there are people outside of Parliament who probably have more success at attracting that centre ground towards the Liberal Democrats than, than, you know, if you're in Parliament with 11 MPs, you have so much to do as one person. Anyway, it, it's not a mainstream kind of view, so I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about it. <laughs> um, so just to recap, in terms of quite a lot, coming up next this year in terms of election reviews, yes. a, <clears throat> a leadership election, the party will also have an update party strategy, which there'll be a big consultation over and then that will come to a debate and vote at party conference as well. Um, so whether people have agreed or disagreed with your views, Lynn, or indeed mine, there'll be lots of opportunities for them to try to influence what the party ends up doing. Um, so thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for being the first guest on season two of <laughs> Nevermind the Bar Charts. Um, for anyone who has been listening and thinking, oh, I, I've now thought of somebody who'll be a really brilliant suggestion for a future guest, please do go and follow uh, at Bar Chart Podcast on Twitter and post your feedback or suggestions for who should be interviewed uh, later, later on in the season. And of course, do please subscribe to the podcast if you don't yet, so you'll get future episodes automatically appear in your favourite podcast application. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>